Welcome to the Brilliant Minds podcast. Brilliant Minds is a two-day thought leadership summit where we gather the most innovative international luminaries, global decision makers, and young emerging talents of our time to discuss the future in the world's creative capital, Stockholm, Sweden. Created in 2015 by Ashpur Nori, founder of At Night Management, and Spotify's founder, Daniel Ek, Brilliant Minds and Symposium Stockholm provides a platform and week-long festival for creative individuals with powerful ideas to come together and interact with a global community of leaders at the intersection of arts and technology. The theme for this year's Brilliant Minds was collaborative creativity. The notion that great ideas and great business happens in between. In between tech and music, fashion and music, innovation and art, in between American and European cultures. In the marriage of the old and the new way of doing things, magic happens. My name is Natalia Brzezinski, and as the CEO of Brilliant Minds and Symposium Stockholm, I'm so happy to say that we're now sharing a lot of our content from the event via this podcast. What you're about to listen to are a few of the speakers that spoke at Brilliant Minds in June. conversation you're about to listen to is really a meeting of two tech titans, living symbols of the best of both Europe and America's tech ecosystems came together in Stockholm at Brilliant Minds 2016. Both Nicholas Sandstrom, founder of Kazaa, Skype, and Atomico, and Eric Schmidt, executive chairman at Alphabet and former CEO of Google, share not only a prescient sense of trends and tech, but also a passion for mentorship and creating companies and networks based on the notion of founders giving back to founders. For this session, we were so happy to welcome Robin Waters, founding editor of tech.eu, to interview Eric and Nicholas. Happy listening. This is an awesome interview. So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Stockholm. Um, delighted and honored to have um, two genuinely brilliant minds uh, with me on stage today. Uh, I'm sure um, they both need no introduction, um, but for the record, um, to the right, we have uh, Mr. Eric Schmidt, who's the chairman of Alphabet, a uh, former CEO of Google. Uh, Google is now just one of the companies of the Alphabet family. Um, and we have Nicholas Enstrom, who I'm sure needs no introduction, especially here in this room, uh, but founder of Skype and Kazaa, and since 10 years now. So you just celebrated yeah. 10-year anniversary of Atomico, so one of the leading global investment firms. 
Uh, so we're going to have a short discussion about new technologies that are shaping our future and the world of tomorrow. But I'm wondering, what excites you personally about the technology that you see every day? Eric, sorry. Uh, I like the whole list. I like the, <laughs> the European and the American list. I think the one that has the biggest impact is likely the current rate of development in machine learning. We're getting to the point where vision, computer vision, that kind of stuff is better than human vision. And we can train systems to behave and mimic like humans. That's why self-driving cars are now possible. You could have more eyes, if you will, on a car than a human has eyes and ultimately produce much, much safer vehicles. The real breakthroughs will be to the degree that we can develop human-level intuition, right? the ability to look at choices and cull them. Uh, the most recent example being the historic success of AlphaGo, the uh, computer Go player against the human. Uh, in order to do go, you had to call choices, not unlike the way we use intuition. And I should note, the technology behind that was uh, DeepMind, which yes. was a UK company that was acquired um, yeah. by Google. Um, so that brings me to my next point. Is, is Europe capable of bringing those futuristic innovations to life? Yeah, for sure. And, and again, DeepMind is a fantastic example of that. I think we are... You know, in, in the European ecosystem, we're we're pretty young. Uh, it was you know after the dot com crash, people here literally thought it didn't you know the whole technology did not work. So it's it's just been 10, 12 years into this, and, and what we can clearly see now here in Europe is that there are a lot of companies which are really focused on deep technology innovation, very very different from just three four years ago. And I think DeepMind is a really really important milestone because it shows you know, technologists and scientists in Europe that, you know what, you can create a, a, a real, you know, deep technology company here. So okay. so I'm very, very optimistic about where we're going. And, you know, bear in mind, some of, some of the underlying technologies that are powering the internet today are actually innovations from Europe, whether that is um, the whole GSM network, uh, the ARM processor, uh, MySQL, Linux. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we have a history of, we should not forget that we have, there are capabilities. Mm -hmm. And you're also on record this week. Um, you said at another uh, fireside chat that you had at, a, at an event that Europe will have a startup in 10 years that is going to become the size of Google eventually. Eric, do you think that's true? Uh, almost certainly. And, and I and others, obviously Nicholas, have worked very hard to try to get a model in Europe that will produce global scale platforms. And the case for it is that we already know how good European tech people are. We hire thousands of them every year, and they are responsible for some of the significant products that you use globally every day. Um, we also know that there's a strong venture community now, helped by you, obviously, as I think one of the founders of it. And Google has put more than $100 million, uh, actually euros, into a fund. And in fact, we've increased it from there uh, into this kind of investing. So we're trying to put our money where our mouth is. We benefit, in addition to the sociological and, and societal benefits of this, we benefit because sophisticated consumers often end up consuming our products. So it's a win-win for us as well. Um, and it's a relatively small step from that, mm. having enough entrepreneurs that one of them hits it really big. Um, I've been publicly quoted uh, many times, and I'll say again, that the governments need to do more in this area. Um, and a simple example has to do with the way you fund your universities. Uh, and and a, as a broad statement, universities in Europe are incredibly poor compared to American ones. And the penalty of that poverty is that the 
graduate schools in the U.S. have a lot of money to play with mm. with their graduate students to do prototyping, to invest in new things, to hire research assistants, to get started. Mm. Whereas the European equivalents, equivalently as smart, are stuck with the equivalent of pen and paper. Mm. Right? So that lack of capital in the universities mm. is a direct cause of a lack of startups because most of the interesting startups start from some, uh, some um, academic breakthrough. Sure. Right? starting with, for example, Google. <laughs> and you've touched a very, very strong uh, pain point for Europe there. Um, another one, I think, has been historically the, the lack of capital. It's improving yeah. for sure. Um, and the numbers are growing. You put out a report every year with Atomico that mm. the state of European tech it shows yeah. the numbers are going up. If you compare them, though, to places like the US, but also mm. increasingly China, the numbers are still quite tiny yeah. uh, when it comes to investments, especially late stage uh, yeah. growth capital. Um, is that fixable? Yeah, it is, and 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 is, is what's happened over the last several years is that we have a really healthy angel community and a lot of new smaller kind of Series A funds. And many of them are actually started by entrepreneurs, by founders themselves, which I think is critical because founders are much better giving advice than others because they've been there themselves. Now, when it comes to a little bit later, say Series B, C, and and and, and onwards, it's been a, a big funding gap in Europe. But I think I'm convinced that it is fixable. I mean, certainly at Atomico, that's one thing we're working on very well. But I think a lot of solutions from here will actually come from, from the pension system. If the European pension funds only invested 0.8% of their, of their investments, we will completely uh, fill that funding gap. So, and you can see some early signs today that, and certainly here in this country, some of the pension funds are now leaning forward and realizing, you know what? Technology is important, and we can get better returns from European technology than maybe some low-yielding bonds. And by the way, we should say that the primary source of funding for the American venture capital funds is pension funds. No. Yes, totally and many of them are from Europe. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder, though, Eric, um, because obviously I don't want to go into the rabbit hole of the whole antitrust issue, but in Europe, it seems to me, if you look at Europe from your perspective, how do you look at this? You have... Um, a lot of talent that you're hiring and that you work with on a daily basis. You have um, lots of revenue coming from Europe. On the other hand, there are attacks from the government. There's some protectionism involved. Um, so what's your perspective on this? How, how do you look at Europe? Well, we always expected this because it's a pattern that American firms face when they work in Europe. My position is we love Europe. We love ser serving Europe, and we're going to continue that. And my own view is that as long as we're on the right side of consuming, generating consumer value, our products, you'll recall, are free, um, uh, we're in pretty good shape. And indeed, after many, many years of investigation, uh, their processes are moving pretty slowly. We have very strong answers in our view, um, and we'll see. But we've tried to have a good working relationship with all the regulators. I would make a, a, a different point, which is that in order to get the kind of startup culture, you have to have a whole bunch of stuff. You have to have the people. Well, indeed, Europe has them. You have to have the educational system. You have them. It's underfunded. You have to have the venture. You and others are bringing it. But you also have to have a cultural approach. And that cultural approach has to be that instead of arguing over zero-sum games, which is what Europe is really a lot about politically, why don't we argue about growth, mm -hmm. right? How are we going to get growth? The solution to growth is entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs, not governments, create companies which create jobs and do crazy things. Yeah. 
So as a regulatory goal, as a corporate goal, as a political goal, Europe should be creating more entrepreneurs. You can do this in universities. You can do this with directed government funding. There are many, many ways. Um, in Israel, the entrepreneurs come largely out of the 8200 group, which is a military group that involves uh, SIGINT. Right? There are multiple ways. In, in China, which is a, a, a historically a very entrepreneurial culture, ignoring the communist side of it, China is trying to sort of leapfrog everywhere you guys are by directed government funding directly into these large pools for entrepreneurs. And in, in the crazy, craziness that is China, they're trying to build global sale companies in very, very short periods of time. So there are examples besides the American model for you all to study. But the fact of the matter is you need to study them and you need to do one of them. Because if you don't do one of them, right, you're not going to catch up. Nicholas, I would love your thoughts yeah. on this. Yeah, well. no, no, well, I, I agree one hundred percent. And you know, I spend all my days speaking to entrepreneurs, and uh, particularly here in, in Europe. And none of them have come to me saying, you know, we, we really need being, we need to be protected. <laughs> none, and I've, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, I haven't heard that. So entrepreneurs in Europe, they just want to build great companies. And and you know, the things that are holding them back is are things like you know, labor laws. Uh, in this country, we have a big problem with with, with employee stock options, which is um, you know which is something that the owners actually want to give away some of the ownership to the employees, which would be great in in, in this kind of country. But there there are kind of laws and regulations which make it a bit harder. But despite those things, there are more and more entrepreneurs in Europe. And if you take Stockholm, Stockholm is punching way way above above its weight in 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 terms of capita. You know you know entrepreneurs per capita or you know re really great successful companies per capita. So, you know, I just look back the last 10 years and look at where we are now. The culture is, is changing and maybe not so much with the politicians, but within you know, young people. If you go to, you know, Stockholm School of Economics, which when I was studying, I didn't study there, uh, but everyone, my friends who went there, they all wanted to go into investment banking. Everyone went into investment banking. Today, like everyone wanted to become an entrepreneur because some of the most successful companies are actually founders who went to that school. So, there is a, a, a seismic shift in, in, in what's happening in terms of, of culture from, from bottom up. And that's, I think, is really, really uh, is a good sign. So, so two, two new points. The first is that in the leading universities in America, the number one major in the undergraduates is computer science. I was shocked. It is more popular than, say, economics, mm -hmm. right? Why? Because of the excitement around Twitter and Facebook and newer companies, Snapchat and also because the technology is highly accessible. Right? When I wander around Europe talking to political leaders, and I've spent this now for a couple of years talking about this, in, the first thing I said to them is, why don't you do an inventory of laws that are existing in your country that you could change that would enable greater entrepreneurship? And I'll, the, t the easiest one to do is, is the regulations around labor. And so I'll, for, for example, suggest that why don't you have a rule that aside from health and safety, the other regulations around registration and so forth don't apply for companies of fewer than 15 people. And everyone says, great idea. Then nothing happens, mm -hmm. right? So uh, there's a, a problem in the governmental system that while everyone is acknowledging that there are these restrictions, right, whether it's limited liability issues, uh, issues with hiring and so forth, they're not willing to carve out or deal with the specialization mm -hmm. that's required to allow an entrepreneur class 
too aggressive. My argument about the 15 is I buy into all of the social rules and regulation and be equal and all that. I'm not opposed to that. But you need to take barriers away from people starting companies. It's, it should be true that today it costs essentially nothing to start a company, right? That, that, the, that the system is all biased in your favor because you have so many obstacles ahead of you for success, right? So let's make it easy yeah. to get you to start. Yeah. We've talked about this before, like the democratization yeah. of entrepreneurship. Anyone can now start a company. But then um, do you th sometimes feel like when you see entrepreneurs coming uh, to pitch you, uh, and you're also an investor in, in technology companies, uh, when companies come to pitch you, do you feel sometimes they're not tackling the real issues of humanity these days, accelerating climate change, mm. um, automation, you know, being a threat to, to a lot yeah. of yeah. blue-collar jobs in, in not just the U.S., but the I, th I think it's both. I think there are, you have a few entrepreneurs who think really big and bold visions, who see big problems, systematic problems, and want to change that by technology. And of course, those are the entrepreneurs that I love to back and, and support, because I'm a true believer that a lot of the systematic problems, sustainability problems we have in our planet will be solved by bold entrepreneurs innovating new technologies and new ways to do the, those things. So we have, and I see more and more of those now, because what's happened over the last several years, and that's, I think that's a global thing, so it's not like, but certainly here, here in Europe, and of course in the US we've had it for a long time, but entrepreneurs are getting more and more confident and more, more um, uh, the ambition level getting higher. That's not true for all entrepreneurs. There are also entrepreneurs who just want to do small things, and, and that, which might be, by the way, might be a good business. You know, I would like to encourage everyone to try to start a business, even if it's, you know, if, if you're starting a coffee shop, you're also, also an entrepreneur. It may not change the world. Um, and there's someone else doing something that is changing, you know, agriculture to make it sustainable, that's a bigger impact. Right. So I like to, you know, like to favor, you know, what I, I'm interested in, of course, you know, entrepreneurs who can have something that utilizing technology that can uh, solve some problems because that's also becomes real sustainable businesses. Eric, do you subscribe to the notion that it's going to be entrepreneurs fixing the world's biggest problems tomorrow? I think with the, if you take my view that political leadership has become more and more sclerotic, that the pressure that's on our political leaders makes it almost impossible for them to take outlandish, courageous, strong positions. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but anytime anyone gets ahead of everyone, everyone just cuts them down. Uh, so where is the leadership going to come from? Right. Well, clearly the business sector of every kind, including entrepreneurs, needs to take this up. Um, I'll give you an example of machine learning. Um, climate change is very real. I don't need to remind people in Scandinavia about that, although in the United States I do. <laughs> um, and by the way, it's actually facts. And I can go through the facts if well, you believe in facts. Keep on repeating it. Okay. It's okay. very yeah. important. Well, yeah. Again, this audience gets it. Um, uh, I, I can go on, but you, get the, you can get the point. Um, there's evidence that you can use these machine learning networks to watch essentially complex adaptive systems change. And if you look at, at uh, fuel distribution networks, power distribution networks, they all change during the day and usage and various things cause them. And there's evidence that if you set up a monitoring mechanism and learn what the usage structure is, you can, from that learning, learn how to pre-stage and otherwise use the distribution network. Now, how much of a savings is that? Do you think it's like a half percent? No, it's five to 10% because the amount of waste that's in that. So if I told you, here's, here's a relatively simple idea that could save five to 10% of em emissions, 
you go crazy. Right. right. So that's an example of the kind of an idea that people are now proposing um, because of this, right? With, again, using machine learning as the base, computer vision is better than uh, human vision. So um, we do, if you think about dermatology, right, or uh, the various things that ophthalmologists do, we can do them more accurately than the human. Not because we're better doctors, because we're not doctors at all, but because we see more eyes or more patches of skin. So we learn better. Are there any negative aspects to that? Like the whole machine learning or artificial intelligence is growing quite rapidly. Is there any danger to humanity to it? Um, if you have watched enough movies, you can become convinced of this. <laughs> We're still at the trying to figure out how to fully deal with games, which are precise, non-adaptive non systems. And it's a long, it's a big leap from that to the scenarios that you see in movies. Uh, our goal and my personal goal over the next five years is to get to the point where everybody here has some, something that's an assistant, right? And I'll give you an example. We, we in Google have taken the position that we want to build an assistant that just makes you more productive. We have a, we built an instant messenger app called Allo, which um, looks like a normal instant messaging app, but it, once it learns how you use instant messaging, it helps you respond. In fact, it will respond for you. And this is highly private and highly secure and all those kinds of things. Uh, we've built a, a system that you talk to, which uses the same mechanism. Last year, we, we debugged this by building a thing that would reply to your email. Now, everyone here in the world would want something that would reply to their email. They have to stop spending all day replying to your email. So we deploy the thing, um, and its most common response is, I love you, which is not exactly <laughs> the correct email in a corporate setting response. Right. So that would say a bug. So you get the idea. So that's sort of where we are. But imagine a few years from now when that same assistant is being used by a physicist or a chemist, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden that assistant can say, I've looked through your, your combination of choices, and why don't you add this reagent to this organic chemical and see what happens? Because I have an intuition based on what I've seen and what you're working on that there might be a path there. That's where the winds start getting startling. So we have a lot of brilliant minds in the room. We have a few minutes left, so we're going to take some questions. I see your hand raised already. Can I get one of the volunteers to come up with the microphone? I was promised volunteers now. All right. Um, why didn't you shout? I'll repeat your question. There we go. Just a sec. Just a second. She's coming. Sorry. Keep it short, please. Cool, yeah. Continuing on the artificial intelligence subject, we have uh, highly intelligent people such as Elon Musk and, and Stephen Hawking like, really expressing concern over the fact that we might have uh, an artificial superintelligent in the pipeline. And, and the scientific scientist average guess is that we have something along the lines of human intelligence around 2040-something, artificial superintelligence around the lines of 2080, maybe. Sure. And, and, yeah. So... My short question to Eric Schmidt is, uh, what is, in your uh, understanding, what is Google like, concretely doing in order to prevent that moment fr from becoming the destruction of mankind? Not because the machine wants to kill us, but because it has a goal that it might want to try to reach so, and we might just be in the way. Yes, please yes, reassure so, us. So, so, the, um, so the scenario you're describing is the scenario where the computers get so smart that they decide to eliminate us in the course of their intelligence through some error or bug. 
um, one of the scenarios that you want to think about is when this occurs, don't you think that humans would notice this? And don't you think humans would start turning off the computers? So then we would have to have a race between the humans turning off the computers and then the virus relocating itself to other computers, right? And us in a mad race to the last computer, and we can't turn the computer off and it destroys humanity. That's a movie. Okay. It's a movie. Um, so uh, Maybe it's not going to be a bug. Maybe it's going to be a feature. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about movies, but the, the state of the art does not support any of these scenarios at the moment. This is speculation. And there's nothing wrong with speculating, but my speculation is just as accurate as anybody else's. Um, in the case of Stephen Hawking, he's not a computer scientist, uh, although a brilliant man. Elon is also a physicist, not a computer scientist, and also a brilliant man. Elon uh, feels so strongly about this that he has invested a billion dollars to precisely promote AI in the kind that I'm describing. So he's put his money not where his mouth is. Right. And uh, so I think the reality is something different than you said. There is not a consensus of 2040 and 2080. Those come from a number of, again, futurist books, which are not vettable. There's no way to know. My own view um, goes something like this. I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to be pretty good at providing assistance to you that is literally computers using deep data, right, deep analysis, to help you be a better human. It is serious conjecture as to the point at which that becomes um, volition, right, choosing its own ideas and its own targets in the way that science fiction talks about. Uh, my own opinion is that there are probably additional hard problems that have to get solved before we, we get there. The problem with interesting statements like this is that they make you run out of time quite quickly. So unfortunately, we don't have any time for any more questions. Um, but I would very much uh, like to uh, thank you for joining us in Stockholm today. And uh, hopefully, you'll stick around. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you all. Thanks.